You're listening to TIP. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and today is another release of our mini episode series that we send out to you every Saturday. In these episodes, it's just me diving into a specific topic that I think will help you all become better investors. On today's show, I'm going to be talking all about factor investing. Now, some of you might not have heard of factor investing before, and I wanted to share this strategy with you all today because since I started implementing more factor exposure into my portfolio, it has been a game changer and has been my best performing investments over the past couple years and ones that I keep planning on adding to and making a core part of my portfolio. It's commonly thought that the only way to beat the market is by stock picking, which isn't true, and that's where factors come in. There are ways you can beat the market and generate alpha without having to pick stocks, which might seem like a more manageable strategy for some people. However, you can also use this strategy to improve your returns if you're a stock picker. And I use both in my personal investment process, and I'll cover both in today's episode. I also have an upcoming episode with a guest, Pim Van Fleet from Robeco, who will be speaking about this more in detail. I thought it'd be helpful to talk a bit more about what factor investing is and give you the background and empirical evidence behind why it works before the interview goes out. All right, with that said, let's jump into the episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Factor-based investing has been around for quite a long time, but it's been growing in popularity in recent years for retail investors, and this is largely because there's been a rise in investment products, particularly ETFs, that have just made it more available for investors to capture these factor premiums in an easy and accessible way. And many of you may already be implementing some factors into your investment strategy without knowing it. Today, I wanted to discuss more about what it is and how you can implement factors into your investment strategy to improve your expected returns in the long run. What are factors? To say it simply, factors are common traits amongst all stocks that are empirically known to drive stock returns. The most commonly known factors are market risk, which is also known as beta, small cap stocks, value stocks, companies with high profitability, and low investment. I'm going to get into what these all mean and what drives these premiums of these certain characteristics in a little bit, but first I kind of want to dive into the background of where factors even came from and when they were discovered. Before researchers discovered these factors, they were noticing that diversified portfolios of small cap stocks were outperforming diversified portfolios of large cap stocks. There used to be no explanation for this difference in returns. However, as research on factors began to emerge over time, it became clear and very robust in the evidence that stocks with certain characteristics, being ones that are exposed to these factors, actually explain most of the differences in returns between diversified portfolios. This was bad news for many portfolio managers at the time because most of the alpha they generated, which used to be chalked up as their skill in picking stocks, 
was then proven to be explained by them just having stocks with more exposure to these certain factors, which is very easy to replicate for the average investor. An important thing to remember to just set the stage for this whole discussion today, and it's the backing of most financial theory around asset pricing models, is that investors want to be compensated for taking on more risk with higher returns. Or else, why would you take on an investment that has higher risk if you weren't going to expect to receive a higher return? Because of that, stock prices contain very valuable information of the market's perceived riskiness of a stock. However, not all risk is created equal, or not all types of risk mean you get a higher return in investing. For example, investors don't get compensated for taking on idiosyncratic or company-specific risk, which is the risk that comes by owning individual stocks. This is the risk that maybe a factory shuts down and that is a unique risk to the company or Elon Musk steps down as CEO would be very devastating for Tesla stock. So those are unique company-specific risks. Michael Gayad brought this point up in one of our recent episodes, which was episode 363. So definitely go check that out if you haven't yet. But the reason that investors aren't compensated for taking on this risk that are individual to companies is because investors can just eliminate that risk by buying more stocks and having more diversification. So the market doesn't reward investors with a higher expected return for taking on this type of risk. Taking us back a bit in financial history, for many years, it was commonly thought that market risk, which is also known as beta, was the only risk factor that investors were compensated for. Because while you can diversify away specific company risk, market risk cannot be diversified away. Every company is exposed to the risks of the market, which include things like inflation, interest rates, recessionary risk, and all of these risks are common to every stock. However, as you probably know, some companies are more exposed to market risk than others. How exposed companies are to market risk is shown in their beta. Companies either have a beta of one, meaning they are as risky as the market, and in general will fluctuate the same as the market does. So if the market goes up by 10% and a stock has a beta of one, the stock will also go up by 10%. And a company with a beta of less than one means the stock is less sensitive to market risk. Usually these are utilities, defensive stocks, and are considered safer investments because as as mentioned, they don't move as much and are often what investors go towards in a market downturn. And a company with a beta of over one means that the price will be more volatile than the market and is riskier, which are often stocks like tech stocks, high growth, and these ones usually have higher betas. For a long time, it was commonly thought that higher beta portfolios or taking on more market risk was the only risk factor that could explain the differences in returns between two diversified portfolios or among stocks. And it was widely believed that the only way to generate higher returns was by taking on more risk or more beta. However, in 1992, research emerged on factor investing from Eugene Fama and Kenneth French, and they found that market risk or beta isn't the only risk factor that explains differences in returns and will lead to higher expected returns over time. In fact, they found that beta only explains roughly 67% of the differences in returns between portfolios. That led many researchers to question 
What explains the differences in returns between stocks if it isn't just beta? In their early research, which won them the Nobel Prize, they found that stocks with certain characteristics or factors being value stocks and small cap companies earned a higher risk-adjusted return than what was expected based on their betas. This is where factors started to come into play. In Fama and French's original three-factor asset pricing model, instead of just looking at the sensitivity to market risk or beta as driving higher returns over time, they included a size factor and relative price factor as two additional independent risk factors, and they found that after including these two risks in addition to market risk, they were then able to explain about 90% of the differences in returns between diversified portfolios which was a drastic improvement from what beta could explain alone. More specifically, they found that small stocks tend to outperform large stocks over time, and cheaper companies or value stocks tend to have higher returns than more expensive companies or growth companies, all else being equal. And that is how the size premium and value premium came to be. Why this matters is because before, investors didn't understand where the differences in returns came from, And as I mentioned, they were likely attributed to luck or the skill of a portfolio manager. But now today, any investor can increase their expected returns by exposing themselves to more stocks with these characteristics or known factors. Taking this research together, we know that combining these three independent risk sources being market risk, small cap companies, and value companies was able to explain almost all of the differences in returns between two portfolios. But it doesn't stop there. And since that finding in 1992, there have been even more factors that have been identified beyond the traditional three Fama and French factor model. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. 
demand is dropping, and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. In 1997, Mark Carhart introduced momentum as another factor, and today many academics also recognize momentum as a factor that will lead to higher expected returns over the long run. And in 2012, Robert Novi Marx introduced profitability as another factor that explains returns. This now gave five factors, which together, these factors explained over 95% of the differences in returns between diversified portfolios. In 2014, Fama and French came up with their own five-factor model, which included market risk, size, relative price, profitability, and investment as the five factors that explain differences in returns, ignoring momentum. They ignored momentum for a few reasons, but mostly because momentum requires a high turnover strategy and it incurs a lot of costs, so without getting into too much detail... It isn't that it doesn't work. They just didn't include it in their model because of these issues. It impacted its robustness. With this new five-factor model, they found that you can explain almost 100% of the differences in returns between stocks or diversified portfolios based on their sensitivities to the five independent factors. So now you might be wondering, what actually drives these factor premiums? Why do stocks with small cap, value, high profitability, low investment characteristics lead to higher returns over time? Well, there are two arguments for this. The first one is a behavioral argument. The basis of this argument is that investors tend to overreact and they overprice certain securities. And that is one explanation why, say, growth stocks tend to underperform value over the long run because of this irrational exuberance in the market where everyone wants to buy these hot stocks, which drives up the price beyond what it's worth, and whenever the price rises, your expected returns decline. The other argument is a risk-based argument. The whole premise of the risk-based argument relies on the fact that some of the factors I mentioned are riskier in nature, and that's why they demand a premium for taking on more risk. So it isn't a free lunch, it's compensation for taking on more risk. However, Pim talks about both of these arguments in more detail in our upcoming interview and actually mentions that the risk argument can't be used to explain some of the factor premiums, rather they are more explained by the behavior argument, which I will leave the details for him to discuss, but I just wanted to mention that here. So for this next part, I just want to walk through each of the factor premiums in more detail And to start off and set the stage for this discussion, I think it's helpful to start with what a stock price is. A stock price is the company's book value plus the discounted value of all future cash flows. The discount rate is the important part because it reflects the amount of risk associated with those cash flows. And it's often referred to as the expected return of the stock. The higher the discount rate, the more the cash flows are perceived by the market to be riskier, 
and therefore should be lower in price than a less risky company expected to have the same cash flows. Using this risk-based argument to explain why these certain factors lead to higher expected returns, we can see that these factor risks must show up in the discount rate. Let's walk through each factor in more detail. So looking at the size factor first, it has been empirically shown that smaller companies tend to outperform large companies over the long run. And one reason this might be explained is because they are riskier than large companies, and therefore smaller companies are more likely to have a higher discount rate, which would reduce its current price, but increase its expected returns over time. The next factor is one that we all know well, which is the value factor. And this one means that cheaper companies tend to outperform expensive companies over time based on some relative price metric. This factor's premium is more largely driven by the behavioral argument in recent years, where overreaction tends to bid up prices of growth stocks, making them overpriced and their expected returns lower, whereas the price of value stocks are lower, which means they have a higher expected return over the long run. The next factor is the profitability factor, which is largely intuitive, and this says that more profitable firms are expected to outperform less profitable firms over time. And the last factor premium I'm going to talk about today is the investment factor, where this one says that a company with lower or more conservative investment is expected to outperform companies with aggressive investment where in this model, investment is captured by growth in book equity. So a company with lower growth in total book equity is expected to earn higher returns over time than companies that have higher growth in book equity. Taking this all together, this model says that the highest expected returns can be expected by investing in companies that are small, highly profitable value companies with lower growth prospects over time. However, I do encourage you to do your own reading on the topic because it does go way beyond what I could cover in a single episode, as well as make sure to tune into my upcoming episode where I chat with a very special guest who is an expert in the field in factor investing, and he touches on an important point about why it's not always better to include more factors. A good starting point for you all might be including a couple into your investment process, So what are some practical takeaways from today's conversation as we covered a lot here? Well, an easy way to get exposure to factors are to buy an ETF that invests in companies with exposure to these characteristics. There are a ton of great ETF products that do all the work for you, so you don't have to go out and find all these companies for yourself. And over the long term, you can expect by holding one of these factor ETFs, such as say a small cap value ETF, like VBR, for example, it is expected that over the long run, you will earn a higher return than the market index. However, if you are like me and you like to take a more active approach to your portfolio and you want to add this to your stock picking process, a great way to do this would be to look for companies that check the boxes of these factors to improve your expected returns. A way I do this easily is by using the screener on our TIP finance tool as this allows you to screen for all of these relevant company metrics I talked about today to determine if the stock has exposure to these factors. And it even has a momentum indicator, which is also something that I really look for when I'm picking my investments. 
I hope this helped you understand more about what factors are, why including more factors into your portfolio can help improve your returns over time, and why you might want to consider adding some of these if you haven't already yet. All right, that is all I have for today's episode. I hope that you found this episode valuable and you learned something new today. And I just wanted to quickly let you guys know that this will be the last mini episode for a little while. I am planning on resuming them shortly. But until then, if you have any topics you want me to cover in future episodes, make sure to reach out to me on any of my socials and let me know. If you guys aren't already connected with me yet on socials, you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca underscore Hotsko and Instagram at Millennial Investing Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.